Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Strangers in Jerusalem YouTube channel and podcast where we explore the Gospels and the Jesus traditions within their Jewish context. And this video is continuing our, our series of Jesus' baptism, this fourth episode. We will now finally get into this text and look specifically at the elements mentioned in the Gospels. And we'll, we'll pull those out and, and uh, break them apart and see how they fit within a first century Jewish setting. And they don't think I know a buttload of crap about the Gospel, but I do. Okay? So follow me. Let's go to Jerusalem. Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... <laughs> only two verses in the in each of the synoptic gospels, synoptic meaning Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only two verses relate the details about Jesus's immersion. You would, you would think that most there would be five or six or seven or eight verses going, uh, telling a lot more details, but all we get is two. These few verses, though, are pregnant with imagery, pointing back to earlier Israelite writings. <laughs> The very first detail in the account is that the heavens opened while Jesus was standing in the water. This is Matthew chapter 3, Mark 1, and Luke chapter 3. In Jewish scripture, the opening of the heaven, that phrase or that notion, is associated with the coming of the Messiah and the end times. So you can see this in Ezekiel 1.1, 1, 1, Psalm 102, 26, Isaiah 64.1, and Haggai 2. Six. So, okay, so that's important. It has this messianic connection. But all four Gospels link John the Baptist to Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. This is Matthew 3, 3, Mark 1, 2, and 3, Luke 3, verse 4, and then John 1, 23. So all four Gospels contain this. Jesus subsequently arrives on the scene to be baptized. Like in the text, they talk about John the Baptist comparison with, with Isaiah 43, and then right in the next detail, it's Jesus that shows up. So the question then is, if John the Baptist is viewed by the authors of the Gospels as the one in Isaiah 40 verse 3, then the subsequent verses would be pointing to Jesus, possibly as Jehovah. So here's what this says. Here's Isaiah 40, this is verse 9 through 11. O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings, lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them into his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Jewish scholars and perhaps even most Christian scholars would not say that this Isaiah passage is connected with Jesus. Some do, but it was the case for early Christians. I'm just I'm just stating that because I don't want my the comment section to blow up and be like, oh, you're just cramming Jesus into these Jewish texts. That's, that's, that's the same way I feel. That's what I've been trying to tell everybody. See, ever so often, we have to let the general public know. Whether this verse talks about Jesus or, or not, that's not my motive here, my, my theological motive. What I'm showing is, here's this text, and early Christians did see Jesus in this passage. Now, the authors of the Gospels seem to show that if John the Baptist, just to reiterate this, if John the Baptist is the one 
or who's preparing the way in Isaiah 43, then the subsequent chapters, and then talks about coming of God, who's going to be a shepherd. Perhaps they they think, they believe that Jesus is Jehovah. You know, later when the Gospels are being written, they're, they're, they're really pounding home the message, driving that home. The authors of the Gospels also seem to associate the, the opened heavens detail with a new exodus, referring to Moses and the birth of Israel. So, for example, Isaiah wrote about God's mercy upon Israel, and he used Moses and the Exodus as the point of reference. So here's Isaiah 63, 11 through 13. Then they remembered the days of old of Moses, his servant. Where is the one who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is the one who put with them within them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to march at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who, who led them through the depths? Notice the similarities with Isaiah 40 in that passage, which mentions a shepherd leading a flock. After Isaiah comments about Moses' and God's act of saving Israel, he adds, in, in Isaiah 64, verse 3, he adds, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Okay, I hope you're, you're noticing and putting the pieces together, because of the three Gospels that mention the opening of the heavens at Jesus' baptism, only the author of Mark uses the word to tear, chapter 1, verse 10. This is the same word used in Isaiah. A Jewish person hearing or reading this account in the first or second centuries would recall Isaiah's prophecy and remember Moses and the birth of Israel. That's specifically how the texts are being written, so that somebody would think of the Exodus and of Moses. The parallel between Jesus and Moses here is clear. Jehovah saved Israel and led its people through the waters into the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus came to save Israel, a mission that begins with the opening of the heaven as he came through the waters and was immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. So it's very symbolic. This is in Matthew 4, Mark 1, and then Luke 4. By using language about the heavens opening while referring to elements in Isaiah 40 and 60, chapter 63, the authors of the Gospels were emphasizing to their Jewish readers that Jesus is both a new Moses and a divine figure who had come to save Israel. Okay, the next detail, after the heavens opened, the next detail in the account of Jesus' immersion is the presence of God's Spirit. After the heavens open, God's Spirit descends upon Jesus and then leads him into the wilderness for 40 days. So again, we refer back to Isaiah, where God's Spirit descended upon Israel after they, quote, came up out of the sea and are saved from Egypt. The authors of both Mark and Matthew employ this same language. After, quote, Jesus came up out of the water, that same, same language from Isaiah 63, after Jesus came up out of the water, the Spirit descends upon him. Like Isaiah, other ancient Jewish commentators posited that God's Spirit descended upon Israel while they crossed the water. The Spirit descending upon Jesus while he was in the water would have been familiar imagery to Jews. All four Gospels mention a dove in relation to the Spirit. It says specifically, if you remember, quote, Spirit descending like a dove. This is in Matthew 3.16, Mark 1.10, Luke 3.22, and John 1.32. Similarly, other ancient Jewish texts compared the Spirit descending to a dove. Literally, the Hebrew is swooping down or hovering. The Hebrew word rachaf, to swoop down or to hover. One Jewish text, in reference to the creation story in Genesis, states, this is in the Babylonian Talmud, by the way, it states, quote, And the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters like a dove, which hovers over her young without touching them. In the Aramaic translations of the Hebrew Bible, the Aramaic Targum, these are translations with some commentaries are on calling, but some interpolations of the Hebrew Bible. This text compares the voice of the Spirit to a voice of a turtle dove. God's Spirit, or even God's voice, is compared to the cooing of a dove, or, or a turtle dove. In fact, it was also Rabbi Yossi in the Babylonian Talmud, a specific sage, 
Uh, he also compares the echo of God's voice to the voice of, or to the cooing of a dove. Now, I say the echo of God's voice, I'll talk about this right now. So, what is this echo? All three synoptic gospels state that a voice came from heaven, quote, it says actually, quote, a voice came from heaven, unquote, after the Spirit descended upon Jesus. How would a Jew in antiquity have interpreted this detail? Several Jewish texts suggest that the voice from heaven is only heard occasionally and is a mere echo of God's voice. The term for this echo, or a distant divine message, the term for this is bat kol in Hebrew, bat kol. It's literally daughter of a voice, or it refers to an echo of God's voice. In early rabbinic texts, this is called the Tosefta. This is dated to like the late second century, so we're fairly close to the time of Jesus, relatively close. In, that, in this text, the rabbis explained why God's spirit and prophecy withdrew from Israel and were substituted by a heavenly echo. So God's spirit withdraws, and all that they get is just a faint echo. So here's the explanation by the rabbis. When the latter prophets died, that is Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, then the Holy Spirit came to an end in Israel. But even so, they made them hear heavenly messages through an echo. Sages gathered together in the upper room of a house of Guria in Jericho, and the heavenly echo came forth and said to them, There is a man among you who is worthy to receive the Holy Spirit, but this generation is unworthy of such an honor. They all then set their eyes upon Hillel the elder. Now, the Hebrew Bible preserves many instances when God communicated with prophets through the bat kol, that this voice. This is the least authoritative form of divine communication. The most authoritative is when God appears to someone, or they can hear directly his, his voice. It's not just a faint echo, it's, it's, it's direct. But the bat kol is the least authoritative form of divine communication. The later rabbis maintain that after the last prophets died, God's spirit and prophecy were withdrawn. Some Jews at the time of Jesus eagerly anticipated the return of God's spirit upon Israel. This would happen through meaningful, widespread repentance, as well as the arrival of a prophet or messianic figure. All of these elements would come together to bring God's spirit and, and to bring prophecy back. This is what would return. In the meantime, communication between God and humankind was confined to the bot kol. Notice also in the account that I just showed you of Hillel the Elder, that the heavenly voice proclaimed Hillel the Elder as being worthy to receive the Holy Spirit. Hillel was a contemporary of Jesus and probably the most well-known post-biblical sage in Jewish history. Also note the similarities between the accounts of Jesus' baptism and the declaration of, of Hillel the Elder's worthiness. Both of these accounts contain the Holy Spirit and the bat kol, and both accounts proclaim divine favor upon the central individual in the story. In these two cases, the central individual is either Hillel or Jesus. But we can conclude from numerous examples in ancient Jewish literature that the purpose of the bat kol was to bestow divine approval upon an individual or upon a legal position that is being debated among the rabbis. So, for example, there's two rabbinic schools. There's the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. These two philosophical Jewish schools debated Jewish law for decades and decades. In one particular story, they were debating a certain issue for three years about which school best established Jewish law. <laughs> I mean, that was their debate. Which one of us is best at helping Israel live Jewish law? The voice, the bat kol, proclaimed that both schools taught the words of the living God, but that Jewish law, the halakah, as we call it, Jewish law, must follow the rulings of the school of Hillel. This is in the Babylonian, this story is in the Babylonian Talmud. There's some, some other examples. Other places in early Jewish literature, the bat kol spoke in favor of a guy named Rabbi Eliezer, whose associates debated with him on every issue. They were, they were constantly criticizing him. And on, on one day, it says in the account in, in the Babylonian Talmud that a heavenly voice, the bat kol, said, quote, what have you with Rabbi Eleazar? 
who the law is with him or like him in every place. In other words, stop giving Rabbi Eliezer a hard time. I am giving him authority and approval to help Israel live these laws. Another famous second century rabbi, Rabbi Kiva, there's a time when he was tortured with iron combs and executed by the Romans. When this was happening, the Bat Kol, the voice of God, proclaimed, quote, happy are you, Rabbi Akiva, or blessed are you. This is the same word we get in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, blessed are they. It's the same, blessed are you, Rabbi Akiva, for you are destined for the life in the world to come. Also, Rabbi Hanina Bendoza, a first century teacher who lived about 10 miles north of Jesus's hometown, Nazareth. He was very famous for the ability to heal people. There's uh, one account where Rabbi Yehuda said about Rabbi Hanina, quote, every day the bat, kol, the bat kol goes forth and is heard declaring, the whole world draws its sustenance because of the merit of Hanina, my son. This is in the Babylonian Talmud. So similar to the case of Hanina, the bat kol referred to Jesus as my son, both at his baptism and his transfiguration. These two, the, and these, these two episodes, the baptism and the transfiguration, show Jesus' authority more than any other, because God is there speaking and calling Jesus my son. Notice that specifically the author of Luke refers to the heavenly proclamation, not as coming from God, but from the voice. Quote, when the voice had spoken. Now, obviously, the message was generally understood to have come from God, but the gospel's description is consistent with ancient Jewish descriptions of the Bat Kol. So at Jesus' immersion, the heavenly echo proclaimed, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. So not only is the voice there, but Jews educated in Torah, in the Hebrew Bible, would have recalled a few parallel passages in their own sacred texts. The first comes from Psalm 2, where, the, where God says to his anointed, You are my son, today I've begotten you. Jesus' baptism account is quoting Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. We know that Jesus' first-generation Jewish followers connected this verse to Jesus because Paul, according to the book of Acts, states he says as much. So here's Acts chapter 13. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So even the early Jewish followers of Jesus made this connection very easily. Regarding the second phrase, in whom I am well pleased, Jews would have recalled Isaiah 42, where God states, quote, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. So that the Hebrew and the Greek is similar. In, in whom I am well pleased, and also here, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. That's Isaiah 42, 1. The authors of the Gospels likely utilize, or I guess emphasize, these Messianic passages to impress upon their Jewish readers that Jesus had authority and was the fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy. Now, there's one more intriguing thing to mention here, and that's that Jesus' baptism and the, the wilderness episode right after his baptism parallels Moses and the Exodus narratives. Uh, we should note here that earlier Israelite authors, particularly those who wrote Genesis through Joshua, structured the, the Moses wilderness story to resemble the life cycle of a human from infancy into adulthood. So there seems to be two birth narratives of Israel in the Hebrew Bible. There's two different ones, and they kind of overlap. Both of these are strikingly similar to Jesus's ministry, which starts with his baptism. The author Matthew most likely had this in mind when composing his gospel. So here, let me give you an example of how the Israelites construct a story to explain that the, the birth of Israel as a nation resembles the birth of, a, the birth of a human being. So in the first birth story of Israel, Moses is presented as the father of the nation. In Numbers chapter 11, quote, Did I receive all this people? Did I give birth to them? Says Moses saying this, I conceived and gave birth to them. Just before Israel's birth at the Red Sea, 
God refers to Israel as my firstborn son. This is Exodus 22. But the Lord then opens the womb. It says Exodus 13, 2. The Lord opens the womb in preparation of Israel's conception. So this is, see, this is, this is a birth narrative. Israel enters the womb of the Red Sea, where God's spirit, or life, nefesh, God's spirit, life comes upon them. Just like a baby in the womb receives life. This is Isaiah 63, 11. It talks about, it has this very language. The Israelites are commanded also to remember their birthday. Quote, remember this day on which you came out of Egypt. The day of their birth, when they came out of Egypt, out of the Red Sea, where they are finally born. They're in the womb, and their birth, remember, God says, remember this day. Exodus 13, 3. The wilderness represents infancy. So after Israel's already born, now they're in the wilderness, they're in infancy when the child is helpless. This is not just me reading into it, it actually says as much. So the Lord instructs Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 12, quote, carry them into your bosom as a nurse carries a suckling child. So as a helpless infant, Israel risks dying without parental assistance. Israel complaining, murmuring, I need food, I need water. They cry for water and bread, and the Lord gives them both from the heavens. So here in Exodus 15, and the, uh, this is verse 24 and 25. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Also in Exodus 15, uh, verses 1 through 4. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Quote, You have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. So just as a baby, an infant, or a toddler is given bread and water or milk, same, same with God, how he treated Israel. So again, the story represents kind of a birth narrative. The second birth narrative parallels the first up until the womb. As in the first narrative, the seed of Israel is implanted into the womb, which is the Red Sea. But in the second birth narrative, the wilderness represents the womb, in which Israel remained for 40 years, representing the 40 weeks of gestation. They received sustenance, water and manna, while growing in the womb, and then the Lord kept Israel in the wilderness precisely because they were too immature to enter Canaan. This is mentioned in Numbers 32, 13. At the end of the gestation period, Israel enters a new world through the waters of the Jordan River, which represents the birth canal in Joshua 3. At this point, Israel becomes a people with a land. The 12 stones immediately erected at Gilgal in Joshua 4 and the subsequent 12 tribal territories represent the young life of, of sibling relationships and budding leaders. These two narrative strands are the stories of Israel's birth. Jesus' experience in the Gospel of Matthew contains all of the major elements in the Moses wilderness narratives, although these aren't always a direct parallel. So like the Israelites in the second birth narrative, Jesus went to the Jordan River for his rebirth and the start of his ministry. The Red Sea and the Jordan River are split for the Israelites, and the heavens are split while Jesus stands in the Jordan River. Also, the Lord declares Israel his firstborn son on the day of its birth, Exodus 4.22, and the Lord declares Jesus his beloved son on the day of his baptism in Luke 3, Mark 1, and Matthew 3. Also, when Israel emerges out of the sea, God's Spirit comes upon them. And when Jesus emerges out of the water, God's Spirit comes upon him. Well, you can, you can read about these parallels in, again, Isaiah 63, 11, and then Mark 1 and Matthew 3. Israel remains in the wilderness for 40 years in preparation for its birth, according to the second birth narrative. And Jesus remains in the wilderness for 40 days in preparation for his ministry. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus represents both Moses and the entire nation of Israel at his baptism, which initiated a new chapter in Israel's history. And this new chapter, according to the author Matthew, this new chapter in Israel's history is a second birth of a nation. I hope you guys enjoyed these four videos on the baptism of Jesus and the immersion rituals in, in uh, ritual in the first century. Check out other videos and subscribe to the podcast. Also check out my book, 
my recently published book, A Stranger in Jerusalem, Seeing Jesus as a Jew. You can find it at Amazon and many other places. You get many more details about lots of different uh, topics that we find in the gospel of the Jesus traditions. Mm -hmm.